0: Well, today we get to return to our study in the Gospel of Mark. So I want to invite you to turn there with me. And if there's one thing that's been established in the Gospel of Mark in the opening chapter, either directly or indirectly, it is the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we look back on the opening 20 verses, the context reveals this. Verse 1 established that it was all about Jesus And you may recall that our study of this verse revealed that the Roman Gentile audience to whom the apostle was writing to uh, basically would have grasped their attention when it introduced Christ as the Son of God in contrast to the authority and false deity of Caesar. Next, the forerunner, John the Baptist, would cry out in the wilderness for everyone to make Make way for, for, for the Lord. Make your path straight. Uh, make straight the way of the Lord is what I was trying to say. As he fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah and preaches a message of repentance preparing God's people. Christ's mere presence and authority, if you'll recall, had John even questioning his own worthiness to touch the thong of the sandal of the coming king. At Christ's baptism, the Holy Spirit descended down into Christ, and the Father's pronouncement of his pleasure in his Son also implies Christ's authority as God's very own Son. Immediately, what took place after that? The Lord was led right out into the wilderness to confront Satan, and he tracked Satan down, and by doing so, he exercised his absolute authority over Satan and Satan's dominion in this world. And Christ's exercise of authority defeated every single conceivable temptation that the enemy could throw at him over a six-week period. It is Christ's absolute authority in the world that needs to be featured. Heaven is and always has been ruled by the authority of God. But the fallen cosmos, our world, has suffered under the influence of Satan and Ephesians 2 asserts that Satan is the prince over the power of the air in this world first John 5:19 it says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one in order for sinners to be saved Christ needed to come and establish his absolute authority over Satan demons and the depraved and unbelieving hearts of mankind and even in verses 16 In 20, in our, our last study together, it uniquely reflected Christ's authority as he summoned the disciples to follow him so that he could make them fishers of men. And they responded immediately. The presence of Christ's authority remains constant. And our passage today will again feature its significance for us. Please join me as we read Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28, which will be our focus today. Here's what it says, starting in verse 21 in the NAS. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, Saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. This passage in Mark's gospel account provides us with the first discipleship experience that Jesus had with Peter and Andrew and James and John, the first disciples that he called. And as we learned the last time, Jesus was going to teach them how to become fishers of men. Or putting into our our common vernacular, he was going to teach them how to be disciple makers. They would be followers and learners of Christ, and he would be their leader and teacher as their discipler. What lesson would Jesus teach them first, and what lesson would he also disciple us to see? The title of our message is The Absolute Authority of Our Savior, and it serves as a synopsis of our study. Our passage will reveal three aspects of Christ's authority that should strengthen you while living in a world of opposition. The world is filled with different forms of authority that are on display for us to see on multiple levels. But there is only one who has absolute or complete authority over all things. <clears throat> Unlike the first disciples, we have the luxury of seeing the full counsel of God's word and what the Bible teaches us about Christ's authority. Christ's first disciples had to be taught about the Lord's authority through his teaching and the experiences that they witnessed firsthand. And Christ wanted them to have confidence His authority. So from the beginning, he prepared them for the opposition that they would face when they would one day be commissioned and sent out to make disciples. First, he would have them see that his authority defines his teaching. Second, he would have them see that his authority rebukes any and all resistance and is able to rescue a sinner. And third, they would see that his authority cannot be contained. There is nothing outside of its realm. It is absolute. The Lord Jesus Christ, God and human flesh, has supreme authority over all things. As the disciples would follow and learn from him, they would begin to see this, as the Lord would multiply the loaves, as the Lord would journey from village to village, and he would heal the sick, the paralyzed would get up and walk, all of these things taking place, even the dead being raised. His authority would be on full display and they would understand it through Christ's teaching and progressive revelation. Each aspect of Christ's authority in our passage was intended to instruct and strengthen his disciples. And likewise, they should also instruct us as we minister in the same fallen world, an antichrist world that by nature and practice opposes The authority of our Savior. Let's look at verses 21 and 22 that reveal this first aspect. Our Savior's authority defines his teaching. And to see this clearly, we're going to look at the significance of the setting in verse 21, followed by the superiority over the scribes in verse 22. Let's start with the setting in verse 21, which reads, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue And began to teach. Jesus, you know, could have taught, started his teaching from from anywhere. And as we read the gospel accounts, we see that he did teach from just about everywhere. Whether it was in the mountains or whether it was from a boat in the sea. He taught in many different locations. Here's what it says that he and the first four disciples, um, the, the setting is that they went to Capernaum. Capernaum became Jesus' residence after leaving Nazareth. And we're not told why he moved there. Although it may have been because the first of the disciples called were actually from there. Another reason he may have started in Capernaum is that there was no shortage on demonic activity or influence in that city. Jesus specifically mentions Capernaum in his list of wicked and unrepentant cities in Matthew 11 and shares that it will be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than it will be for Capernaum. This strategically located village was located on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and most of its inhabitants were Jews who labored as fishermen and farmers, merchants and officials, including tax collectors. And it was a mixed population because there was also a Roman garrison there a roman military base and relations between the jews and gentiles were apparently pretty cordial and according to luke chapter 7 and verses 1 through 10 a roman centurion not only built a synagogue for the jews in capernaum but in the same account we even see the jews pleading to jesus on this official's behalf when he requested that jesus heal one of his sick slaves so this is the synagogue that Jesus is walking into as he entered the Sabbath to teach. And unlike the temple in Jerusalem where animal sacrifices were practiced, Jewish synagogues were basically assemblies. They were auditoriums for the Torah to be read and to be expounded. There was but one temple in Jerusalem, but there were many synagogues throughout the Mediterranean world. And all it took was ten or more Jewish males 13 years of age or older who were present in order to establish a synagogue. So there were a lot of synagogues, a lot of them. A synagogue building had a threefold purpose. It was a place of worship on the Sabbath, and then it also served as a schoolhouse during the week. Third purpose, on occasion it would serve as a place to hold minor hearings for court cases. Um, smaller court cases that would be handled in the community would also take place in the synagogue. The services on the Sabbath consisted of prayers, the reading of the Old Testament, and teaching. The reading of the scriptures and the teaching were open to any qualified individual selected by the ruler of the synagogue. Typically, the ruler of the synagogue did not preach or expound the Torah, which meant that the Sabbath teaching an exposition usually occurred from a visiting rabbi or a scribe who would show up or it could actually take place from anyone in the congregation or the assembly that was equipped for the task the significance of the setting is that people in synagogues would have been accustomed to hearing the word of god read and taught synagogues are even nicknamed houses of instruction. And so the synagogue setting served as a great place for Jesus to teach, and the gospel accounts mention this reality. Matthew 4:23 says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Luke 4:16 says, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 18, verse 20, Jesus is standing before the high priest, and he's giving an account before the high priest, and he shares this, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Little did the people know who were at this synagogue in Capernaum Uh, know what they were headed for uh, this day when Jesus showed up to teach. Look at verse 22, which provides us with insight. It says, they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Jesus' teaching was different. Unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, who typically would just quote other rabbis and other scribes, Jesus comes up, and his listeners could sense that there was this superiority as it related to his teaching over the scribes. And those familiar with the gospel accounts, you've heard Jesus share this phrase. He would say, you have heard. You have heard it said, right? But, dot, dot, dot. And then he would go on, and he would provide a greater and a deeper understanding in his exposition of what God's word was trying to teach. One commentator shared, the scribes, who were largely Pharisees, were in bondage to quotation marks. They loved to quote the authorities. Rabbi Hillel says this, but on the other hand, Rabbi Gamaliel says this. Then there is Rabbi Eliezer's testimony, it was secondhand theology. Their labyrinth, petty, legalistic distinctions were boring, with no spontaneity, no joy. Unlike the scribes, Jesus had arrested their full attention. And what impact did it have on the people? Well, the beginning of the verse helps us to see. It says, they were amazed. And there's a few different words in the New Testament, that in the Greek, that can tra- be translated amazed or astonished, but the one that we have right here in this verse is the strongest. One lexicon defines the meaning meaning to strike a person out of his senses by strong feeling. Jesus literally blew their minds with his teaching. But the question needs to be asked why. I mean, after all, Mark, he doesn't even give us any description about what was even being taught. There's no record of it. But he does share something I think that's important for good reason. Verse 22 says, For he was teaching them as one having authority. That was the main point. Our Savior's teaching defines and permeates every aspect of what he taught. And Christ was leading and teaching his disciples, helping them not only to see the reality and the authority of who he was, but he is also providing them with an example to follow and laying a foundation that in time would strengthen their convictions as they were sent out on their disciple-making ministry journey. One pastor shared, what a lesson to the four fishers of men. To be sure, they did not sit down and analyze the situation in classical categories, but they learned by his example. They knew he was genuine. They knew he passionately cared. They saw how he handled God's word, preaching it clearly. In time, they would minister in the name and the example of Christ and would experience miraculous power, for the Holy Spirit is pleased to use such messengers, standing firmly upon the authority Of Christ, the question that we need to ask ourselves as disciples of Christ is: How does His authority define and shape our ministry? How does His authority define and shape our worldview as we look out? Does His authority does His authority compel you and I to? to stand firmly against the opposition that we'll face to teach in a second 2 Timothy 2:23 2, and 24 manner patiently gently standing firm and bold in our convictions to evangelize to disciple to live by his authority does Christ's authority strengthen our convictions when we face opposition in this world? That, that, that is the question of the hour, does it? And what the Lord Jesus Christ wanted his disciples to see, and what he would have us see, Cornerstone, is that his authority has to strengthen us. It does. It has to it, it build it, uh, it builds a fortress of protection around us and he wants us to see it clearly and our second aspect of Christ's absolute authority reveals our need to be strengthened by it even more first our savior's authority defines his teaching second our savior's authority rebukes resistance and rescues and here in this aspect we'll focus on verses 23 through 26 as we consider the resistance the rebuke and the rescue First, the resistance. Let's read verses 23 and 24. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. We don't know when the opposition arrived in the synagogue, but we can be certain that the authority and what Jesus was teaching was having a great impact on the people. And as the people sat thunderstruck by Jesus' teaching, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out. And the Greek, it's actually saying he shrieked. That's what he did. He, he was filled with terror. He shrieked. The light and authority of Jesus' teaching proved to be too much for this demonized man. And you know what? Instant fear and terror gripped his heart. Just like cockroaches and slimy creatures, right, hidden underneath a rock. You notice what happens, or maybe you've had a trash can out in your, in your back port on the side of the house. Try to keep it in the garage, but it smells too bad, man. Right, you, you, you move it and all of a sudden you see the, the bugs underneath. What do they do when the light comes? They scurry, right? It, it's unbearable. And this is exactly what is taking place here. The demonized man wanted nothing to do with the radiance and the reality from the light and authority of Christ's teaching. It uncovered and exposed the demon living inside of this man. And here we need to have just a little lesson on demons and demonology to Properly understand what is taking place, and this should really, I hope, help and, uh, help strengthen your worldview uh, that we face uh, on our planet. I mean, seriously, have you ever turned on the news and you see another example of some lunatic who strapped a bomb to himself, who went in and and just blew himself up? with innocent bystanders uh, standing around. Or maybe you've read about or heard about online sex traffickers who have taken dozens of children and, and sold them into sexual slavery. And, and you ask yourself, right? You, you ask yourself, what is wrong with this world? Anyone, you ever had that experience? I think we all have. We all have. And as it relates to the opposition in this world, there are actually four contributing factors that need to be properly understood. The first one is Satan. The second one is demons. The third is the depravity of the human heart. And the fourth is demon possession, which is actually the worst of all the factors. And I'll help you to see that in just a moment. The first opposing factor in this world is Satan. And his name means adversary. And he's the originator of sin. And Satan was the first of the fallen angels that sinned. And he is the chief adversary against God. He is responsible for sin and the fall of mankind. And he takes credit for tempting Adam and Eve in the garden. Satan is the personal name of of the head of demons the second opposing factor is demons and defined by systematic theologian wayne grudem demons are evil angels who sinned against god and who now continually work evil in the world the tactics of both satan and his demons are one and the same They use lies, deception, murder, every other kind of deceptive activity to attempt to cause people to turn away from God and destroy themselves. Demons also try to use temptation, doubt, guilt, fear, confusion, sickness, envy, pride, slander, or any other possible means to hinder a Christian's witness and usefulness. The third opposing factor is the depravity of man. The human heart is wicked and desperately sick. All right, we know this, Jeremiah 17.9. Francis even mentioned it in his message last week. And Romans 1 reveals that the inventions of evil come from man as a result of a depraved, unbelieving heart. And without God's intervention, man is spiritually dead And as a consequence, is given over to an unlimited potential to do evil. Unlimited potential to do evil. A Puritan writer shared this quote that captures the significance of the depravity of man when he wrote, If not for the common grace of God, we would all be devils incarnate. That puts a perspective on it. Well, the fourth opposing factor is demon Possession, which I mentioned, is the worst, and and allow me to explain. In cases of demon possession, the three previous factors actually all work together. It starts with the union of a demon taking possession of a depraved human being, a lost human being, right? And there's a union together with that demon and the depravity. Now, check this out who's Satan literally means the head of demons right so he has authority over all demons that means that he can tell any demon at any point in time to do whatever he wants them to do and so here you have a demon residing a person with the governing authority of Satan over that person over that demon excuse me to tell that demon in control of that person to do whatever he wants to do. And we wonder, and we read through our history textbooks, and we read about the Jewish concentration camps and what the Nazis did and the torture of people and the heinous crimes in in history. And we wonder and we say, how in the world can this happen? That's how. That's how. How? And there's actually, as those three factors work together in demon possession, it serves really in many ways an unholy trinity. You have the chief demon, Satan, whispering in the ear of the demon that has possessed the person to do whatever he can get them to do. This is a a brief overview of spiritual opposition in our world, and I hope it provides a little bit more to the insight of the the resistance in our passage. Here we have a demon-possessed man. And our English translation says, a man with an unclean spirit. But in the Greek, it is literally saying, a man in a spirit unclean. And it views the man as moving in the sphere of the spirit's power, under its control. And as we just learned, demons are fallen angels. And so this explains why the demon speaking through the man recognizes who the Lord Jesus Christ is, right? He's a fallen angel, so he's in control. More than likely, the man has no idea, has never seen Jesus before, but the demon speaking through him says, I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. Holy one of God. And so this warrants the rebuke from Jesus, which comes in our very next verse. Look at verse 25. It says, and Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. Demons know that they are running on God's eschatological clock. They know the time is coming when they, along with Satan, will be casted into the eternal lake of fire of God's judgment. And that their temporary access to this world and Satan's dominion of darkness will eventually be dispelled. It is why the demon asked the question he does in plural form in verse 24. Have you come to destroy us? And that's actually another perspective that I didn't even share that I'm just thinking of as it relates to the factors that sometimes demons work together in legions, right? So imagine not just one demon possessing a person to do something heinous, but imagine a legion a legion. Wow, it opens up insight. And so they ask this question, have you come to destroy us? And the demons know the time is coming. But everyone else in the synagogue has no understanding or awareness at this point of God's eschatology. So Jesus' rebuke served a dual purpose. First, it, it, it allowed him to be silent so that he... Uh, couldn't attempt to disrupt the timing of God's plan. And secondly, and even more importantly, the rebuke of the demon demonstrated Christ's absolute authority over demonic influence. And there's an unfolding progression that we need to see here. Jesus is establishing his authority. He'd just been baptized and then immediately was led out into the wilderness. And who went out with him in the wilderness? Satan was out there, but nobody else, right? And it's recorded for our account so that we get to see it today, but nobody else during that time knew about it. And now Jesus, what, he defeated Satan, right? Took it to Satan, Satan ends up leaving. And now his attention and his authority is directed yet again with purpose, He is going to express because when Satan fell, one third right of the angels fell with him, right? So there's a there's a lot of evil angels, demons, right? And Christ needs to let the disciples know, let us know as He disciples us that I have authority, I have absolute authority over them. And as previously noted, Jesus wants to prepare the disciples for the opposition that they will face when they head out to make disciples. He's grooming them to trust in his authority over the demons and the resistance that they'll face. And we see an example of this in Luke chapter 10 when the 70 are sent out. They went out and they they did their ministry and they came back and they were greatly encouraged. They were full of joy. And they said this, even the demons listen to us at the sound of your name, at the mention of your name. Jesus is laying the foundation here in Mark chapter 1. Jesus, we are told in verse 25, said, be quiet to this demon or literally say nothing before telling the demon to come out of the man. In many ways, this is a foreshadowing that reveals that only through the authority of Christ can a person be freed from demonic captivity. Our Savior's authority rebukes, resistance, and rescues. And we've seen the resistance as well as the rebuke. Verse 26 now reveals the rescue. Look at verse 26. It says... Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. The authority of the Lord Jesus Christ rescues the possessed man from the demon's power. And in a final act of demonic rage, right, because the authority was pronounced, the demon has to depart, there's no other option. And in a final act, he, he, he goes into convulsions. And again, demonic activity is always designed to destroy people. So this is just one last expression of demonic rage throwing the man to the ground. And then he departs out of the man. Now it needs to be noted that Christ simply relieved the man of being demon-possessed. This, the man is still a sinner in need of saving grace and in need of Christ's authority to save him from his sins. Yet we don't know what happens beyond this point, other than that physically he returned to a state of normalcy. What we do know for certain is that much like Satan, who left defeated after encountering Christ's authority, here the Lord's encounter with the first demon yields the same result. The demon flees from Christ's presence. I find it interesting that Christ's authority in our world today still causes those who are under demonic influence and those who are incarcerated to a depraved human heart, it still throws them into convulsions. Notice it? Very common. We see examples of this all the time. You mention the authority that the Lord Jesus Christ has, that God has as it relates to marriage, and you will have same-sex advocates do what? They will be enraged. They go in, They literally go into convulsions. How, you, how, can you, how can you say that? How can you... Marriage is defined by the Lord Jesus Christ and it is a picture of his glorious gospel and it is between one man and one woman, period. He's the authority. You are intolerant. You are unloving. You are hateful. It's enraging. It's enraging. The same is true in the academic setting. If you go in and you start talking about the biblical account of creation, and you see the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ confront Darwinism and the theory of evolution, and you say, I'm sorry. It's a proposed theory, but let me give you some fact. The authority, the Lord Jesus Christ, he spoke our world into existence. He is the creator he is the authority. He is the judge. And what do people, it sends them into, into convulsions. You can watch the movie, God is Not Dead. You see the, the, the effect that it had on the, the professor, just enraged, enraged him. And this is just the top of the list. And we can, you can just go right on down the line of, of the list that causes convulsions. You want to have prayer in school? Convulsions! Oh my gosh! You want to have a Bible study? You want to have a Bible study in your public workplace? Convulsions! Here's one for you. You'll like this one. You you want to actually use uh, the name Christ at Christmas time, and you want to write Christmas to celebrate. The holiday of Christmas, it enrages people. It sends them into convulsions. Why? Why? Because even the name of Christ represents his authority and is an open rebuke to those who resist him. Just like the 70 that were sent out. And they even shared, and they came back and brought the testimony. Just even the mention of your name, the authority of your name over demons. Satan, his demons, and the depravity of the human heart and dwelling unbelievers cannot stand the spotlight of the Lord Jesus Christ's absolute authority shining into their darkness. Now, here's the irony. Only by submitting to his authority can a person be rescued. And the primary way that they can be rescued by his authority according to God's plan and purpose is for someone who believes and who has submitted to his authority to go out and to evangelize them and to share and to preach the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their need to be rescued by his authority has to be shared. The gospel has to be brought to bear on their life. And there's a challenge there, right? Why? Because what does the truth do? Oftentimes it's resistance, it's persecution that's going to we, we see from the example it's going to send people into convulsions, spiritually speaking. but yet. It is what we are called to do. Question for you. Who might God have you rescue this week in your workplace? Whom might God have you rescue in your school this week? In our neighborhoods in our families. We either believe in Christ's authority or we don't. We either believe in his authority and the power of his authority or we don't. And I'll be the first to confess that so oftentimes I can I can be huddled and I can be so cozy around my own little gospel campfire and then I'm saved and then God's growing me and then I'm sanctified and I get to experience the warmth and the joy of that. But let me tell you cornerstone, he never meant that it would be contained. He never meant that it would be contained, that we're to take that, 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 that fire and we're, we're to go out and, and really we're to set this world on fire with the gospel. And it takes people on fire for God to set the world on fire for God. It does. And the truth be told that there are that fire is, is and should be welcomed much more than the other fire that's coming, right? We, 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 want to, we, want to, we, we want to be salt. We want to be light. We want to light fires. We want to stand just as the Lord Jesus Christ, believing in the authority of his teaching, right? We need to see the reality that it rescues us. And then God saved us for that very purpose to go out and bring that authority to bear on other people's lives. And that fire can flourish. And there's a lot of talk about revival. There's a lot of talk and hope about, oh, what might God do? And he needs us to burn at a thousand degrees. He needs us to to have a passion for his authority, for the gospel, to bring it to bear. Because as I mentioned before, that fire is coming. And that consuming fire of his judgment is coming. Right? And we can either bring the fire and the light of the gospel to people and help them to see their need, to respond to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in their life. Or if they don't, then they will face they will face that all-consuming fire. The fire of God's wrath and judgment. Christ's authority was never intended to be contained. And how do we know this? Because Scripture testifies to it, including our third and final aspect in our passage. Our Savior's authority cannot be contained. First, it spread throughout the synagogue. Verse 27 says, They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Then it spread throughout the region. Verse 28 says, Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Outside of Jesus and his disciples, how many parties do we basically have in this group today? Two. One are the people in the synagogue that overheard the the teaching, and then the other is the the, the demon, really, who's hijacked or incarcerated uh, another human being. Okay? And interestingly, each party's response to Christ's authority is very different, yet we can learn lessons from both that help us to see why Christ's authority spread so rapidly. The people in the synagogue, we were told twice, stood amazed as they considered Christ's authority. It literally blew their minds. As a result, they went out and told other people about what Jesus had done. The demon's response, on the other hand, was one of absolute terror. Coming face to face, With the authority of Jesus, gripped the demon with fear. And he was mindful of the impending judgment of Christ. So we have amazed people and an afraid demon. Really afraid demons. They're all fearful of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are elements to both of the responses that can teach us something about responding to Christ's authority. We should be captivated and amazed in a spiritually healthy way about Christ's authority to, to what he can do and how he can use us. There's a song by Jeremy Camp and you can maybe YouTube it later or look it up online to listen to. It's the same power. It's called I don't know if you've heard it. It's the same power that, that, that raised Christ from the dead, that caused uh, uh, the, the dead to be raised. The same power is indwells us the same power and we can be amazed in a spiritually healthy way about his absolute authority over all things and likewise we can also be captivated but in this case afraid in a spiritually healthy way of impending judgment that awaits for all those who don't believe We can learn something from both parties, right? There is a consuming fire that's going to come. And we need to be the witnesses that God has called us to be. He is gathering in a harvest. And he is going to use us to go out and to gather it. We can learn something from both parties in this regard. Yet... They also help us to see that it's not enough to be amazed, just amazed or just afraid. Being amazed by Christ never saved anyone, and there are plenty of people who are fans of Christ, but not followers of Christ. It's true. There are many people who wear a cross around their neck. In many ways. I thought it was a great illustration in your sermon last week. Francis was so blessed by it. just even the. the the, what the cross stands for, and he used the electric chair, you remember, and people were taking pictures next to it, and they were just finding their amusement. They, 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 they completely gave no regard for what it truly stands for. And I think there are many fans of Jesus who, who carry the cross around their neck, and it's pretty cool. You know, it's pretty cool. Check out my gold cross. I mean, check out my platinum cross. Whatever they make it out of, check it out. Check it out. Big fans. Big fans. Even the fans of the reading of the miracles that he's done, they even celebrate the idea of him. But in the end, they're unwilling to bend the knee to the authority, his authority in their lives. Being afraid is also not enough. In fact, the demons prove that it's very possible to recognize Jesus for who he is and hate him all the more. And still despise him and still reject his authority. The proper response to Christ's authority is our adoration and our allegiance when we have recognized what Christ has done on our behalf through the authority which he alone has to rescue us and save us as sinners, to free us from our depravity, from our hopelessness, from our despair, through the gospel, he overcomes our resistant and depraved hearts and rescues us from the penalty of our sin, and it causes our hearts to adore him. It fuels within us. He, he, we can love him now because he first loved us. And that love fuels our hearts to have an adoration, to have affection for him and what he's done. Our affections and appreciation for salvation abound. And it's also what encourages our hearts to express our allegiance to him. He is our authority our absolute authority, and it rescues us day after day. The spirit within wages war against the depravity of our old man. And adoration in our hearts leads to allegiance in our heads. get it. Adoration in our hearts and the affection and all of it's the inner man The Bible makes no distinction; It just talks about that your innards, your guts, really. But really when you think about it from the affections of the heart leads to the allegiance of the head and the decisions that we make. It translates that way. J.C. Ryle expressed it this way when writing about this passage. Let us take heed that our faith be a faith of the heart as well as of the head. Let us see that our knowledge has a sanctifying influence on our affections and our lives. Let us not only know Christ, but love him from a sense of actual benefit received from him. Let us not only believe that he is the son of God and the savior of the world, but rejoice in him and cleave to him with purpose of heart. Let us not only be acquainted with him by the hearing of the ear, but by daily personal application to him for mercy and grace. The life of Christianity, says Luther, consists in possessive pronouns. It is one thing to say Christ is a savior. It is quite another to say he is my savior and my Lord. The devil can say the first. The true Christian alone can say the second. So true. And we are the church. We are the body of Christ, which by definition has to do with those who have been indwelt by the Spirit of God, right? Let me, this might frighten you a little bit. Let me tell you right now, if you're a believer and you're in Christ, you're possessed. You are possessed. And you're possessed by the Holy Spirit. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit of redemption. And in the same way as demons, the evil demons, possess and influence, right? And try to lead and destroy, what does God do? He possesses and he influences our life and he's trying to lead and guide and direct us to an abundance of life, a fulfillment of life. The joy of life. And our lives are to speak God's word authoritatively. Not only that, but as the church of Christ were to be involved in deliverance from sin, Christ calls his followers to minister in his authority. It is our responsibility to spread it throughout the world. One thing that has me awestruck as I think about the Lord Jesus Christ is his desire to. Disciple and equip us for the sake of the ministry. And you know what? He always led by example. He always led by example. And the end of his ministry, he commissions us to make disciples. And what does he do? What does his life and his ministry consist of? He models for us exactly what we're called to do, and that is to make disciples. He's showing us how to make disciples. In Cornerstone, if there's one word that you leave with this morning that he would have you take with you every day and, and, and not think lightly of and cherish in your heart, is, it's his authority. It's his authority, governing authority in your life to lead to fruitfulness in your life. That in every aspect of your life, that his authority would be brought to bear so that he can bring you joy in every area of your life as you yield to him. It's the authority that you possess as you go out and you evangelize and minister to the world. Yes, he calls us to make disciples and he shows us how to do it. Likewise, he starts his ministry by showing his disciples, discipling his disciples, really, to trust in his authority because of its significance. And how does he end his ministry? Among our Lord's final words were these All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus is with us. His authority rests with his church. Let us possess it and use it with humility and energy. Amen, Cornerstone? Amen. Please pray with me.